you would this morning, turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Paul the Apostle writes, Paul and Silvanus, which would be Silas, Timotheus or Timothy, under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, we give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy and the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. It says, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. Here the Apostle Paul begins writing an epistle to, one of two epistles to the church of Thessalonica. If you read in the book of Acts, you'll see where he traveled to this place. One of the things, of course, that's mentioned about them as he uh, preach there, he mentions about the Bereans, or Luke does, how they were more noble than the ones at, Th at Thessalonica, because the Bible says that the Bereans, they heard the word of God with all readiness of mind. In other words, they, they came attentively to hear the word of God. It says, but they went home and they uh, searched the scriptures to see whether those things were so. Uh, they were not critics of the man of God. They were uh, going to prove all things and hold fast that which was good, but they came uh, with a ready spirit to hear the word of God. And I would to God that I would always be that way instead of being a critic of the word of God and a critic of the man of God trying to bring his word. Now that doesn't mean he's always right, he's not. And so that's why the Bible says, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. So they had the right spirit and then they went home and did the right thing and we ought to do the same. But that doesn't mean the church of Thessalonica was not a great church, they were. Notice what Paul says about them. He says, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. I love that verse. It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. That tells me that I can know who the elect of God are. At least I can know who some of them are. Let me put it that way. I can know who some of the elect are. And he's, here's how he tells me. He says, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. So here the apostle says, I know that you're beloved of God, and because you're the beloved of God, you're the elect of God. And he says, I know that because when I preached the gospel to you, he says it uh, was received by you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. I don't know about you, but I like to know that I am the elect of God. I like to feel that I am his elect, to know that I am embraced in the election that took place before the world began, because I believe this firmly. If I was not chosen by him before the world began, I have no chance whatsoever of seeing uh, heaven's glory at the last day. It's just not going to happen. There's no other way that I can see consistent in the word of God that if I was not chosen by God and placed in the Lord Jesus Christ before the world began, I have absolutely no hope of seeing the Lord either uh, when I breathe my last or he comes back, whichever uh, comes first. But I thank God for the doctrine of election. Uh, the doctrine of election to me is one of the most precious teachings of the word of God. I do not understand why anybody would object to this doctrine. To think that God chose you <laughs> and God chose me. And, and for the ones that he didn't choose, they don't care to start with. So he didn't do them no disservice by not choosing them. So uh, for those who would criticize God for not choosing everybody, don't worry about it. Those not chosen don't care. Uh, they don't love the Lord, they don't care about the Lord, they don't want to be with the Lord, and they don't want to be where the Lord is. So uh, he did them no disservice whatsoever uh, by passing them over. But thank God that he chose you, and thank God that I feel that he has chosen me. But I want to focus that the Lord will bless us in verse 3 this morning. 
In verse 3, Paul says, after he says, we give thanks to God always for you and making mention of you in our prayers, he says, remembering without ceasing, notice he says, your work of faith, he says, your labor of love and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. The Lord will bless us this morning. I'd like to speak on the subject of hope as found in the Word of God. Hope in the Word of God has many meanings, uh, especially in the Old Testament. As I was looking last night in the Old Testament, the word hope is translated from almost a dozen uh, Hebrew words. Uh, in the New Testament, it's only about three, if I did my counting right. Uh, in the Old Testament, it can mean a refuge. It can mean trust, like we would use faith. Uh, or it can mean an anticipation. In the New Testament, though, hope is more limited in its definition. In the New Testament, whether you're looking at the, one of the three Greek words, almost every time it means an anticipation of something to come. A lot of times we would call it our earnest expectation, an anticipation. It is not a, a fairy tale. It's not just some wish, but it is an expectation, but it's based on something. It's not based on uh, nothing. It has uh, a substance. It has a ground underneath it. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now obviously the things that I hope for and the things that you hope for uh, that are recorded for us in the word of God, I have not yet seen them. In fact, Paul would say in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, in the 24th verse, he says we are saved by hope. And certainly hope does save us. How does it save us? Number one, it keeps us out of despair. Uh, it keeps us out of uh, feeling separated from God. It keeps us uh, uh, preserved in a way in our uh, walk before the Lord Jesus Christ here in this world. He says we're saved by hope. He says, but that which is seen is not hope. He says, for what a man is here, why did he yet hope for? But we with patience do wait for it. So obviously hope in its very definition in nature is based upon things that we cannot yet see. Uh, the Apostle Paul would say in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Now abide of faith, hope, and charity. Uh, right now there are three elements that abide in the child of God and thank God they do. He says faith, hope, and charity. Now it's interesting he uh, couples or put, brings these three things together. He does also in the verse we're reading. He says now abide of faith, hope, and charity. Faith obviously is our confidence in God. Hope is our anticipation to see God. And, of course, charity is love, uh, more precisely love put into action. Uh, here in this verse, he says, we remember without ceasing your work of faith. He says, your labor of love and your patience of hope. So here again, we see uh, hope, we see faith, and we see love or charity in this verse as well. But there he says, now abide in faith, hope, and charity. He says, but the greatest of these is charity. Now in the verse right before, he says, we see through a glass darkly. Right now, you and I do not see the full picture. We cannot see it uh, clearly yet. Uh, by faith, we're able to see it, he says, but dimly or darkly. We see through a glass darkly. He says, but the day is coming that we shall see face to face. There's coming a day that whatever veil exists between our side of heaven and heaven itself, that is going to be done away with, and we shall see. And we will behold, we will uh, be able to see, and that's why he would say, now abideth. Now, uh, faith and hope will not always abide. <laughs> There's coming a time that faith and hope will have their end. There's coming a moment that faith, uh, our confidence in the Lord, uh, will not be needed no more. Our anticipation of God will not be needed anymore. Why? Because the confidence we have, we will experience in person. And that which we anticipate will have arrived. And so there's coming a day, and thank God it's true, and I believe that it's true, uh, with most of my being, I can say at least that much, that uh, the day is approaching that I won't need faith anymore, and I won't need hope anymore, but thank God love will continue on. While faith and hope will have its ceasing, will it, it will come to its end. Thank God that the love of God shall never end. As Paul would say in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, he says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life. He said, goes on and lets us know that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So love is going to be the banner in heaven. <laughs> That's what we read in the Song of Solomon. He brought me to his banqueting house, he says, and his banner over me was love. <laughs> and thank God that the feasting that we're going to do when the marriage supper of the Lamb occurs, the banner over that table and the banner over that meeting uh, eternally will be the love of God. And thank God that we can trust. That's why he says the greatest of these is charity. 
Uh, why? Because it's the love of God that motivated God to reach down to where we are and to uh, take us from this uh, low place of sorrow and sickness and pain and uh, to place within us the hope of Christ uh, to know uh, the best we can that there's something far better awaiting us in glory. And thank God uh, we trust that that day is approaching. So he says, I remember without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Then he says, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. So here Paul connects faith, love, and hope with activity. Faith without works, the Bible says, is dead. I can say all day that I love, but if I'm not willing to show that by my labor, then my words are just that, words. And then also I can say that I hope in Christ, but yet if that does not motivate me and keep me in a state, then, then truly my hope is not where it ought to be. Now I will say our hope and our faith, it waxes and wanes. There are days that my faith and my hope seem so strong that I feel like I could almost reach out and touch heaven and see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm never just quite there. And the day is approaching that I trust we will be there. Uh, but there's times that my faith and my hope are that strong. And then I'll confess to you, there are moments that even as a man of God, a minister of the gospel, that I wonder, is this all real? Is think, the things contained in the Word, is it really true? Can I really believe what is contained in the Word of God? Is there really a creator? Is there really a heaven? Have I really been elected by the grace and love of God? Did the Lord Jesus really come into this world and die for my sins? Is he coming back the last day? Are those things real? Are these just uh, imaginary tales that men have contrived through the ages? And I believe that that is an honest question. Uh, and I trust, I, well, I shouldn't say, I believe probably all of us uh, struggle with that at least occasionally in our life. In fact, the Apostle Peter would let us know in 2 Peter chapter 1 uh, that we're to add to our faith virtue and knowledge and so on and so forth. He says, and if ye shall do these things, ye shall never fall. He said, in fact, he says, you will make your calling and election sure. I have learned by experience that in the moments that I have doubted, in the moments that I am concerned about the reality of heaven and my secure place there, when I look back, uh, uh, just have to trace it back a little bit in my life, I have found that I have not been dedicated to reading the word of God. I've not been living the principles that Peter set forth there by adding to my faith. And then before long, what's I, I have fallen into despair. And then I began to question the reality of heaven. The reality, did the Lord Jesus come? And the reality, is he coming again the second time? And so hope in the word of God often is connected with activity, with action. Here, though, it's talking about the patience of hope. So here the apostle says, we remember without ceasing your work of faith. Faith has labor that goes along with it. There's activity. Now, he goes on to say, and your labor of love. Now, the word, the word work and the word labor here are two different words. The word labor actually means more intense work. Uh, yesterday, Brother George and I, we did some intense work. We knocked out about three foot wide a block and about uh, seven foot high to put a, a door into our garage. And believe me, there was some intense work going on. Thank God for Tylenol last night or I'd be more sore than I am right now. As hard as we may labor in this world, though, it's more important that we have a work of faith and a labor of love. And then he goes on to say, and then also patience of hope. He lets us know that this church, the things they had, he says they received the word in much affliction. So this church was troubled like most of the other churches of the New Testament era. In that age when the apostles preached, the church was impacted. They were persecuted. They saw a horrible thing. So this church didn't have it easy. Uh, they struggled, just like you and I struggle. Uh, all mankind since the fall of Adam has had their problems and struggles and troubles and uh, that's going to happen. That's just the reality of the human condition. It's just going to be the way that it is and I'm amazed at time and perplexed why people get so perplexed about their being in trouble. I, the Bible just tells us it's going to happen. Man that's born of a woman is few days and what? Full of trouble. Uh, Peter would say, think it not strange. The fiery trial which shall try you is some strange thing has happened to you. 
How many times have you watched a believer have trouble come in their life and they're just astounded uh, that trouble could come their direction? I'm astounded that they're astounded because the word of God tells us it's going to happen. And uh, human experience tells me it's going to happen. It's just the reality of our... And just because you're a believer does not... Uh, does not move you to a situation where uh, you're neutral when it comes to trouble coming into your life. It's still going to happen. In fact, the Lord made clear that if they hated him, they would hate us also. So just because you're born of the Spirit of God, been baptized in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't mean your troubles are over. In fact, you've got more trouble than anybody else because Satan desires you to sift you as wheat. So he's going to try all he can to bring trouble into your life. And so what do we do when that happens? Well, this church, they were patient in their hope. What does that mean? It means they endured the affliction and did not let the affliction diminish the anticipation of seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know that? I know this because the Apostle Paul in chapter 4 wrote about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And then in chapter 5, he says, at the times and seasons, there's no need that I write to you. Well, apparently Paul was wrong because the church at Thessalonica, they got so excited about the second coming of Jesus, and they thought it was so close at hand that many of them had quit their jobs, they had quit engaging in this world, saying Jesus is coming back anytime, and they put their entire attention on that. Now, there's nothing wrong. In fact, all together, we ought to have um, a great anticipation. That, in fact, is what the, really the definition of hope is, is seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. In uh, Titus chapter 2, he says, looking for that blessed hope and... That word and can also mean even. That means they're one and the same. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So hope really is uh, anticipating seeing the Lord Jesus Christ come back the second time. That's really the definition of what our hope is. I mean, I hope in blessings. I hope that he'll continue to bless me as I live in this world. I certainly stand in, in hope of that. I hope to see this church continue to be blessed. I stand in hope of that. But truly what my hope really is, is that the Lord Jesus is coming back and I'm going to see him when he does. As Job would say in the 19th chapter, that even though the skin worms destroy this my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. That was the hope that Job possessed, that I, he would see his Redeemer. And he would see his Redeemer in his very flesh. So hope goes beyond just seeing Jesus, but that we will see Jesus in these bodies, knowing the Bible says that they should be changed and fashioned like the glorious body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, he says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. So in other words, in the time of affliction, this church did not allow the affliction to diminish their anticipation of seeing the Lord Jesus. As I've already mentioned, many of them were so excited about the second coming of Jesus that they quit their jobs. Now, Jesus said in his own words, occupy till I come. There's things that you and I are to be busy doing until the Lord comes back. We ought to be busy worshiping him. We ought to be busy serving him. We ought to be busy honoring him. But one of the ways in which we do that is laboring with our hands to provide for our own and taking care of our household, whether it be a husband and father who is out uh, earning a living, whether it be a mother who is a keeper at home and is uh, toiling in the home, or the children who are doing whatever labor the parents appoint to them to do. All of us have a labor that we are to be engaged in until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church at Thessalonica, they set that aside saying Jesus is coming back any moment. We don't need an income because Jesus is coming back. And so Paul writes them in 2 Thessalonians and lets them know that they're walking disorderly, that what they're doing is wrong. They let their hope get a little carried away. You know, the apostle Paul says about the Jewish people, not as a whole, but those that he knew were children of God. He says, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. That word of means from. That means the zeal they had was from God. He said, but here's the problem with their zeal. It's not tempered with knowledge. Uh, some people think zeal's bad because of what Paul said there. Paul was not criticizing their uh, hearts full of zeal. What he was criticizing was their lack of knowledge. That was the problem, not that they were a zealous people. In fact, the Bible says that God has called us to be a zealous people, zealous of good works. So anyway, here again he says he's, Remembering without ceasing their work of faith, their labor of love, their patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we see that hope has some activity. Now you say, well, patience, that's not really activity. Yes, it is. 
patience, for anybody that doesn't have it who's trying to get it, you know that it is quite a, a labor. It's quite a work. Uh, I, I'm not the most patient person. I know that. I will say this. I'm more patient now than I was when I became your pastor. I'm, I have learned some patience along the way. I'm still not where I need to be by a long shot. And the problem, though, is I know how it comes. And But the reality is, is trouble's coming whether you want patience or not. Uh, so I used to say, please don't pray for patience for me because I know how it comes. Well, I've learned that whether I am praying for patience or not, trouble still comes. So I might as well be praying that the Lord would give me uh, strength, patience, endurance while I'm waiting to see the Lord's face. So again, he says in Hebrews 11 that, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. He says, for by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. So faith and hope are very closely linked. But they are different. Faith is our confidence in God. Hope is our desire to see God. So faith is the substance. It's the ground. It's that which our hope is built upon. So our, our hope is not just some wishful thinking. Now I can say, well, I hope for a million dollars. That may or may not happen. I don't know. But when I say, well, I hope to see the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a, I'm saying something different there. I'm saying that I have confidence based upon the word of God that I'm going to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Say, well, but how much confidence can I have in the word of God? Well, thankfully, the word of God, it, it defends itself. If we're honest in our study of the word of God, it defends itself. One of the things that I do, one of two things that I do when I get into that period of doubting, and again, that comes to me periodically, how often it just depends, but I do doubt, and there's times that I wonder, there's times that I'm concerned, is this all reality, or is this just a fantasy that men have contrived to overcome uh, fear and so forth? That, again, I believe is an honest question, but I believe there's an answer to that question found in the Word of God, and so there's moments that I, I so one of the things, one of two things I do, and I'll tell you, but one is I simply go out, and especially in the nighttime. Because I can do just like David did and look to the heavens. And when I look to the heavens and I see the handiwork of God, and I began to consider the creation, and I began to think about how well uh, this whole world works, when I think uh, how synchronized it all is, when I began to ponder and think about how uh, everything from uh, the cells in my body to the stars in the sky all are working exactly in unison and how there's not what not with one another necessarily but in unison in the way that they're designed to work that could not have happened accidentally there's just no plausible way that accidentally creation could have occurred the creation that we see like it is there's just no way I mean, the chances of that uh, uh, just evolving into what we see today is so absurd that that alone gives me confidence in the Word of God. The second thing I do, I go to the Old Testament and I began to look at the prophecies concerning the life and ministry and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I began to consider them, and then I read in the New Testament a man who lived upon this earth, and some of these things were written thousands of years, some of them 4,000 years before his appearing. And how that he, in 33 and a half years, was able to fulfill all the various prophecies concerning his first coming. And I think about how in the world, what are the chances of one man in 33 and a half years to fulfill all those things. Some of those he had absolutely, as an infant in his mother's womb, could not by his own activity fulfilled. Somebody had to be doing it in his behalf. In other words, God was doing this. Now I realize even in the womb he's God. But there were things as a child and as an infant he had no control over as a man. Now later you say, well, he could have read this and then fulfilled Maybe so, but when you take the totality of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, just the fact a virgin conceived. <laughs> that prophecy alone from Isaiah chapter 9 is astounding. And then you read all there is about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he fulfilled every prophecy concerning him. Think about the sermon that he preached to the two on the road to Emmaus. And their hearts burned within them as he preached from Moses all the way through the scriptures, expounding the things concerning himself. So those are two things that I do. I think about the creation, 
And then I step back and I think about the Lord Jesus and all the prophecies concerning him. And you know what that does? That restores my confidence in the word of God. Now we'll get to that in just a moment. But there's also something else that God has done for us. So I have the word of God that's external. It's here before me. Now obviously I try to hide it in my heart. So that it's also internal. And I also know that God has written his law in my inward part, so I know that it's there that way. But also God has done something else for the child of God while we live here. We find in Romans chapter 8, and you know, Old Baptists love this chapter, and really any child of God ought to love this chapter, because the language contained in this chapter is not just beneficial to the primitive Baptists. The, uh, the language in this chapter is beneficial to every child of God. It tells us so much of how we got from being in that condemned state, whether Jew or Gentile, as Paul wrote about in Romans, the first chapter, as he talks about uh, the, not the evolution of society, but how it devolves over a period of time. And then he lets us know how we're recovered from that. But anyway, in the seventh chapter of the book of Romans, Paul says this, beginning in verse 14, he says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. So if you're living in a state of fear, understand that is not from the Lord. The Bible lets us know that he's not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. So here he says, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So I have the word of God, but I also have a testimony within my own soul. Notice again, when God leads us by his spirit, that testifies we're the children of God. We're the sons of God. He says, and we've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. That's not what God does when we're regenerated. God does Now, let me say this right. He gives us the spirit of the fear of God. In, in other words, now we respect the God that we hated. But as far as fear of the circumstance of this world or even our own future, that's not derived by God. That's not what God gives us by his spirit. He says that this is what God does for us. He says we have received the spirit of adoption. What does that mean? It means it gives us the feeling of inclusion in the family of God. That's what you get when you're born of the spirit of God. And then he goes on to say that by that we cry, Abba, Father. It's hard to describe the word Abba there. It means father, father. But the first one, Abba, it's more dear than just uh, the word father. I hate using this term, but I don't know a better one. My three children all call me daddy. Uh, and every time I hear that, it does something to my soul. It stirs something within me when I hear that word daddy. They don't call me dad. They don't call me father. They call me dad. And I like that. And I hope they call me that even uh, when I'm 80 years old. <laughs> Uh, there's something about a child saying that very sweet term. And while I would not want to try to apply that same term to God the Father, the sense of that term is what we're trying uh, to bring to mind when we say Abba Father. So his spirit comes to us and we now feel to be uh, the sons of God. We feel to have the spirit of adoption included in the family of God. And we cry Abba Father. And the Spirit, I love this, the Spirit itself, and that's capital S, that's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit beareth witness with our spirit. So heaven communicates with my heart. Think about that. And that's amazing. Thank God, the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity of the Godhead, the third in the Godhead, he communicates with my spirit. So the Spirit witnesses I like it. the Spirit itself. It doesn't communicate with some other means, but the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Then he says, I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He says, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. What's he saying there? He says, our hope, the hope of the creature. Now, the creature here is the new creature. If any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things there obviously means not literally everything. The whole world's not changed when a child of God is born again. But our perspective of this world has certainly changed when we're born of the Spirit of God. Uh, there's a total change about one part of us when the Spirit of God regenerates us. So he says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. That means we are a creature. He says, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we, not will, but that we should walk in them. So here we are, new creatures. So he says, the earnest expectation, the hope, if you will, of the creature, the born-again child of God, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. What does that mean? It just means we're waiting for the moment when the Son of God comes. Because when the Son of God comes, it's going to be revealed who the whole family of God is. He just It's another way of Paul expressing one aspect of what's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. Our main focus is going to be Jesus. But it's also going to be a blessing to know who the family is. <laughs> right now, I know part of the family. I'm looking at you. I don't know who the whole family of God is, but the day's coming. I'm going to know my entire family in Christ. I've been to family reunions in my life, and I didn't know who some of those folks were. Our family used to have those. I think they still do. I haven't been one in years, and uh, I'm more concerned about this family than I am that family, if you understand what I mean. And it's a long ways to travel back to Texas to go for a weekend family reunion of people I don't hardly even know, and some of them I don't know at all. My great-grandmother was one of 13 children. Now, just imagine when you go down to the generations how many that is now and where they're all spread abroad. I don't know who they are. <laughs> now, obviously, if I go to a family reunion, it's manifested who are the uh, sons of, uh, of uh, Lloyd and, uh, well, not even Lloyd Merritt, going back one more generation. But anyway, um, there's a manifestation that comes. But there's coming a day that the family of God is going to be revealed who they all are. And Paul says the creature is waiting for that. The new creature in Christ is waiting to see the whole family of God. Now he goes on to say, for the creature was made subject to vanity. That means even after we're born again, we deal with the emptiness of this world. That's just a reality. Now, if I had done it, I would have made it that when we're born again, we don't still have the old nature. God didn't do it that way. Notice what he says. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly. That wouldn't be my desire. He says, but by reason of him, that's God, who has subjected the same in hope. So here in this one verse, he says we're subject to vanity, but we've also been subjected to hope or in hope. That's interesting. So it is the will of God that we're still subject to vanity. Now, that doesn't mean that because we're subject to vanity that we have an allowance by God to just live any way that we want to. But we still have the old nature that we possessed before we were born of the Spirit of God. But the very same one that has left us subject to vanity has also subjected the same, meaning the new creature that's born again, child of God, has subjected him in hope. So here you and I have the blessed opportunity to live a life of, a life of anticipation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, hope is a very real thing, though. We've talked about faith just a little bit, and as you read Hebrews chapter 11, it goes on and says that, for by it, faith, the elders obtained a good report, goes on down through and tells you about all those individuals, starting with Abel. Uh, it goes to Noah. It talks about uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It talks about Sarah. It talks about Moses. talks about David. Uh, many other individuals. It talks about what they were able to do because of their hope, or excuse me, their faith, their confidence in the Lord. But also in Romans chapter 4, we find Abraham's activity based on hope. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes this about Abraham. It says in verse 17, As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Now, God told Abraham he would be a father of many nations before he ever had a first, his first child. And if you recall, Abraham had a wife who was barren. And so she came up with the plan that he would have a son by her handmaid. And so they did, and Ishmael was born by Hagar, but God did not recognize that son. 
I know that because later in Genesis chapter 22, when he commands Abraham to take Isaac up to the mountain to offer him, he says, you take thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest. God did not recognize that son, Ishmael, at least in a way of blessing. So Abraham is told, you're going to be the father of many nations. He is told that in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Now, at the first he's talking about Isaac, but God is looking forward uh, to a seed of Abraham that would not be Isaac, but would be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so here, uh, Christ has to come through Abraham. The problem, though, is, is Abraham's got a barren wife, Sarah. And then, finally, when he's about 99 and she's 89, God comes to them and lets them know about that time the following year when he's 100 and she's 90 that they're going to have a child. Now, think about that. If God came to you at 100 and your wife is 90 and she's never been able to have the first child and God says, you're going to have a son this time next year, she laughed. (laughs) Now, Abraham laughed at another time. Now, we criticize Sarah for that, but the Bible says through faith, Sarah conceived, received strength to conceive. So there was confidence that Sarah had in the Lord. Now, the only reason that I know that Sarah had faith is because Hebrews 11 tells me that. When I read Genesis, I don't see much evidence of it, but the Spirit of God saw her confidence in the Lord. So by faith or through faith, excuse me, it says that she received strength to conceive. So she did possess faith, just like her husband Abraham possessed faith. But again, think about it. If you have been promised by God for 25 years... That you're going to have a child. For 25 years, this promise has been going on. Finally, at age 86, you take it into your own hands. You've waited 11 years. And so you have a son. God doesn't recognize that son. God comes to Abraham and lets him know that he's still going to have a son. He says, well, let Ishmael live before you. Uh, You know, let him be the promised child. He says, no, he's not the one that come by promise. So notice this. It says, as it is written, this is Romans 4, verse 17. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. So here is God talking to Abraham, letting Abraham know you're going to have a son, and it's going to come by Sarah. And so here's Abraham, here's his quandary. Well, I've been waiting for this for 25 years. I haven't seen that happen. But notice when it says he does recognize that it's God who quickens the dead. It's God who brings to life from the dead. And he calls those things that be not as though they were. When God said, let there be light and there was light, was there a sun, moon, or stars? Not for four more days. (laughs) When God uh, spoke this world and heaven itself into existence, Did he have to take some other substance in order to make it so? He did not. He just spoke, and there was something that was not there before. That's why he is a creator. Man may be an inventor, but they're not creators. You know, you know what shows created by? No, it wasn't created by. It was sought up by, invented by, or whatever. God's the only creator. Uh, There's no other creator. He's the one that literally can take nothing and speak, and here we have this entire world uh, that's before us. So it says of Abraham or says of God, that God quickeneth the dead, and he calls those things which be not as though they were. Those are two important things to remember about the nature of God, that God can take something that's dead and make it alive. Well, that's what needed to happen to Sarah's womb, but also to the reproductive powers of Abraham. That had long been dead, so God is going to quicken that which is dead, and then he's going to be able to uh, call those things which be not as though they were. See, God could look at Abraham and already see Isaac and all the way into the future, his son coming into this world. See, Isaiah 46 verse 10 says about God declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times are the things that are not yet done, declaring my counsel shall stand and I shall do all my pleasure. God's not limited by what's not there yet. He can already see it, declare the end from the beginning. From the beginning of time, he can already declare the end of time. I can't do that other than reading the word of God, but I can't declare what the end of this day is going to bring. God thankfully already knows it. But anyway, notice this, verse 18, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, 
He considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. That's a lot that says about the nature of Abraham. Now, first it says, who against hope believed in hope. Now, his faith is going to come into play in just a moment. Now, when it says, who against hope believed, that word against doesn't mean that there were two contrary thoughts here or two contrary hopes. The word it says who against hope, that word against means leaning upon. So his hope leaned upon hope, in other words. That's really what Paul is conveying here. He says, who against hope believed in hope. Here he is, a man of hope, and what's he doing? He's leaning upon hope. It kind of reminds me about uh, Jacob when it says in Hebrews 11, who by faith worship God leaning upon his staff. But how much better to lean upon the hope of God uh, than a staff of this world? Well, that's what Abraham does, who against hope, uh, in other words, who with hope leaned on hope. Now, I don't know how to further describe that. He just was a man that he hoped that what he hoped was real. But you know what? He followed that then by activity. Remember, they were patient in their hope at Thessalonica. So this man, Abraham, he was patient in his hope. He, he says, well... I've seen that God has created this world out of nothing. He's brought life to the dead. And so it, it goes on, being not weak in faith. Verse 9, he considered not. Now, this is hard for me to fathom. He considered not his own body now dead. When he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. So God says, here's what's going to happen. Now, I do know when I read the account in Genesis, he had some doubting. Sarah laughed, he questioned, but then something changed in the heart and mind of Abraham and Sarah after the Lord left them there in Genesis chapter 18. Because notice what it says about it, and being not weak in faith, he considered not, he did not take into consideration the deadness of his own body, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't let that enter into his mind. That's one of the keys of hope is that we just don't let, as best we can, don't let the doubts and the wonderings and all the deceitfulness of Satan even enter into the mind. As soon as it, you know, some say, well, I keep an open mind. Well, be careful because you don't know what will come in. Uh, everybody wants open-minded people. No, they really don't. In politics, you know, the left wants open-minded people. No, they want people that think just like they think. But the right's the same way. We're all that way if we're really honest with ourselves. Uh, open-minded people, if you're not careful, you just don't know what you'll let in. There are some things that you and I need to be very closed-minded about. I need to be closed-minded about what God has promised and what I know, the best I can know, what God can do. That's what Abraham did. He closed out the fact that his reproductive powers had ended. He closed out of his mind the deadness of his wife's womb. And he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. He just didn't let unbelief creep in. But was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. He says, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Who is that? God the Father. So he says, I'm telling you this story of Abraham, who against hope, believed in hope. With his hope, he leaned on hope. He says, and he didn't consider the things that were against his faith and hope. He put those as much as he could out of mind. He was fully persuaded that what God promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore, because he acted upon the hope that he had and just trusted in God, walked by faith, what happened? It was accounted or imputed to him for righteousness. He was considered a righteous man because he employed the hope that God placed within him. And he also just had confidence in the God who placed that hope within him. And he trusted that God was able to perform that which he had promised. And so God says, because you did that, you are a righteous man. And then he says, and it wasn't written for his sake alone. He says, but for us also, to whom it shall also be imputed, if we believe on him, if we'll believe on the Father, he says that it was imputed, uh, excuse me, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So Paul says this was written. 
not for the sake of Abraham. I mean, Abraham, it's already, he's experienced it. But it's recorded for you and I. Why? So that you and I can see how God has behaved throughout history and that we will believe on the same one that raised up Jesus from the dead and that we will employ the same hope, that we will be patient in hope that when afflictions and doubts come, we'll try our best to put that aside and trust in God who has delivered so many times before and blessed us throughout our experience. He says, so it wasn't written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe. Now, the righteousness that we're talking about here is a daily righteousness. Understand that when, when you pass away, you're going to glory because your soul and your spirit is already righteous before God. And then when Jesus comes back, the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation, he's going to do something miraculous. He is going to take his righteous clothing and put it on you. And then you're going to go into heaven, righteous body, soul, and spirit. But this is a daily righteousness. And I don't know about you, but my, the faith that I have in the Lord that proceeds from God and my hope in him is something that's very precious to me. But I also know, it, as I mentioned at the outset, it waxes, it wanes. There's times it's strong and there's times it seems about gone. But this verse encourages me to know that if I will believe on the Father who raised up the Lord Jesus from the dead then the same righteousness that was imputed to Abraham will be imputed also to me. But notice it took activity on the part of it. He believed, he trusted, and he moved forward. He didn't just say, well, God will just make this happen. Well, he trusted that God would do God's part, and then uh, he believed on the Lord. And, of course, they had that son Isaac, the promised son. It came supernaturally. It came by promise, not by the typical course of nature and, of course, in Isaac, all the seed would be blessed, ultimately speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Abraham, we may say, well, but he heard the voice of God. In fact, we can go further than that. He didn't just hear the voice of God. He saw God. Because in Genesis chapter 18, he was sitting in the tent door of memory. And there were three that approached him. One was God. Two were angels that were sent on to Sodom and Gomorrah. So he saw the Lord. Wasn't the first time he'd seen the Lord. But you have to wonder, was there ever a time after that fact that Abraham has, you know, did I really see what I saw? <laughs> did I really hear what I heard? And there's times that's, that's how I feel about the things that I have experienced in the house of God and from the Spirit of God. Did I really experience, was that really real? <laughs> and so some may say, well, but he had that experience. Or we can go to Paul, who talks a lot about heaven, but the Bible says about him that he was caught up to the third heaven and he saw things that was unlawful to be uttered so Paul could have confidence in heaven because he had seen it. But it's also Paul that said we see through a glass darkly. It's Paul that, I wonder if Paul ever stepped back and said, did I really see that or did I just dream that? Well, see, the apostle Peter, he addresses, remember the Lord, before I get there, the Lord, after his resurrection, he appeared and there was one Disciple absent, Thomas. And we criticize Thomas for his doubting. But if you read about Thomas earlier in the New Testament, Jesus was about to go to a place where they had lately sought to stone him. And Abraham, excuse me, the Lord went and they all said, if you go, they're going to stone you. And the Lord says, well, it's day, so I've got to walk in the day for the night cometh when no man can walk, but he'll stumble. And you know what Thomas said? Thomas said, let us go that we may die with him. So we can all criticize Thomas about the resurrection. But this was a man that earlier he says, you know what? If Jesus is going to go, let's go. And if he's going to die, let's die. So let's be careful about our criticism. All right, so in the Gospel of John, Jesus appears in the upper room. He meets with the apostles. Thomas isn't there. They're telling Thomas about it. He says, I don't believe y'all. <laughs> that's not true. He says, it's not real. Now, what would you say if somebody that you knew, that you love, and you've seen them put to death, and you watched him be buried, and somebody tells you three nights and three days later, they're alive? What would you say? I'd say, you've lost your mind. So what Thomas is doing is understandable. Again, it's not right. He shouldn't have questioned. He should have believed because the Lord had told him that if they take down this uh, temple in three days, 
I'll build it again. And he spake about his body, not about the temple of Jerusalem. Because they were showing him all those buildings, trying to show Jesus of all people. Trying to show Jesus the glory of his own house. Think about that. Uh, here they're trying to show Jesus the glory of his own house. And he says, you see all this in three days. I mean, it's all going to come down. Not one stone left upon another. And then another case, he lets them know that they're going to take this temple down. His body. He said, but I'll build it up again in three days. Of course, they were amazed by that because they talked about how long it took to build that temple. But anyway. So, John, uh, I mean, excuse me, Thomas, he just, it's beyond what he can grasp. It can't be real. I saw his dead body. How can this be real? And so he finally tells him, if you'll recall, he says, you know, unless I put my finger into the nail prints of his hand and I thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. So he hardly gets through saying that, and Jesus just appears in the upper room, and he goes straight to Thomas. Why? Because Thomas, who's needing him right now. Remember when Peter was out weeping bitterly after the death of Jesus? What does Jesus do? He says, you go tell the disciples and Peter. He was very focused individually on his children. I take a lot of uh, encouragement from that, that he doesn't love us just collectively. He loves us individually. And we see that in uh, him coming to Peter and now coming to Thomas. And he comes to Thomas, and he doesn't criticize him at first. He just approaches him almost with his hands like this. I just imagine in my mind, he says, here are my hands. Here's my side. Do what you said you need to do. And, of course, Thomas doesn't need to do that now. He has seen, and he says, my Lord and my God. And what does Jesus respond? He says, You've seen and believe, he said, but blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. All right, so here is Jesus speaking to Thomas. He says, you've seen me and you believe. He says, but blessed are those who haven't seen me yet they believe. Now let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to try to wrap this up. Um, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter says, now, this is Peter who was there in that upper room when he heard the Lord say that to Thomas. This is Peter who saw many things of the Lord Jesus. He says this in verse, let's actually back up a little bit. He says in verse 13, yea, I think it meet, that means right. He said, I think it right as long as I am in this tabernacle, I'm in this body, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. I love that. He doesn't say I need to teach you all sorts of new things to stir. He said, no, I just need to stir your minds to remember things you already know. That's the purpose of preaching is to stir people up with things hopefully you already know about. <laughs> anyway, he says, I think it means it's right as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. He says, moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. Now think about this. Peter is talking a lot about his death. Peter feels his departure from this world is imminent. He says, so before I put off this tabernacle, he says, I want you to remember some things. He says, in fact, it's right as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up, knowing this, that shortly I must put off. In other words, death is at hand for me. <laughs> and as he's thinking about dying, he is letting them know there's things that you have been taught that you need to remember. And I'm sure that Peter was reminding himself of these things. But then notice verse 16. He says, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables. He said, the things that I want you to remember and the things that we've been following, they're not crafty or cunning uh, fables of men. These have not been devised by men in a cunning way to trick people. Now, say, well, of course Peter would say that because he wants these people to follow. He doesn't say that to his own glory. He says this to the glory of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. If he was saying this simply for his own glory, he would have changed this up a little bit. But think about it. He is defending here the honesty and the integrity and the accuracy and the preservation of nothing less than the word of God itself. And so here the apostle Peter says, we have not followed cunningly devised fable when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, but were I witnesses of his majesty. Now here is the Apostle Peter. He's talking about a very specific experience in his life. He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. He's talking about the time when he, uh, James and John, were carried there by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when they were there, all of a sudden there appeared with him Moses and Elijah. And they spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. And they saw a preview of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw Jesus glorified as you and I will see him at the last day. Now, if I had that experience, I would have held that up above everything else. I'd say, wait a minute, I have seen the glorified Jesus, and that is the ultimate thing to see. And to know, that's not what Peter does. That's what I would do, and that's what any other human being would do unless they were inspired by God. Peter would have said, I've seen the glorified Jesus, and what I'm telling you about, that's all you need to know. I've seen it, that's enough. That's not what he does. Notice what he goes on today. He says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He says, And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So think about all that Peter's just laid out. He says, Jesus was glorified by the Father. We heard a voice come from heaven, which was the Father's voice, when we were with him in the holy mount. But he says in verse 19, we have also, all of us together, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. You know what Peter just said? That the word of God that's here before us is more sure than our personal experience. Paul's personal experience of being carried to the third heaven, that was important. But you know what was more important to the Apostle Paul? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he talks about the resurrection. He doesn't talk about going into heaven. That might have happened after that. I don't know. But you know what he says? He says, we declared the gospel unto you. He says, by which you're saved, if you keep in memory. He says that how that Jesus died and was buried according to the scriptures. And rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And before Paul ever even gets into eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, what's he talk about? He talks about what the Word of God says. So Paul says in his writing that the Word of God, the Scriptures, is more important than the testimony of all those people who saw with their own eyes the resurrected Jesus. Whether I see it or not is not important. What I need to have confidence in is the Word of God itself. And that's what Peter is here saying. Peter said, I was in the holy mountain. I saw Jesus uh, glorified. I heard God speak from heaven. He says, but here's something more sure than what I saw there and what I heard there. He says, we also have a more sure word of prophecy. And he says, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. Until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. That's talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's coming a day that the day star shall arise. That's Jesus there's coming a day that he's going to rise in the sense that he's going to rise up from his seated place in glory and he's going to come back for each one of us. And then he says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. Then he says, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So Peter just said, what we have written in the word of God is more sure than what I saw and what I heard. So our experience is secondary to the word of God. Once again, thank God that the spirit, capital S, itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. I thank God for that. But that's secondary to what the word of God itself says. The word of God itself is sufficient. Now, will it remove all doubt? Probably not. Uh, it, it hasn't for me. There's still times that I have doubted. But thank God for the hope that's within us. Uh, Paul would say to the church of Colossae that it's Christ in us. The hope of glory. The fact that you have hope about the Lord Jesus Christ is a testimony that Jesus himself dwells within you. And thank God when you feel that. But even in the moments when you don't, just take a stop and look and say, what am I doing in my life? Because once again, every time I read about those who were living in hope, there were people who were very active in their service to God. They did not allow that to fall slack. Again, Abraham, who against hope believed it, there's things he moved forward in because he believed. You can go all through the word of God and find those that were placing their hope in God. And what happened? They were actively uh, seeking but also walking towards the Lord. There in Psalm 42, when David, who's a very low place, finally just says, O my soul, why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou 
in God. David says, I have a disquieted soul. So what do I need to do? He says, I've got to just hope in the Lord. And in that, my soul will quiet down. What was David doing? He was drawing near back to the place of the word of God. So that hopefully his uh, hope would be uh, encouraged. It would be strengthened. It would be magnified. Uh, And that's exactly what you and I must do. There's going to be moments that the hope that you have seems dim. Because the confidence that you have placed in his word and the confidence perhaps that you have placed even in your own experience with the Lord has fallen dim in your experience. And that's going to happen. It's just the reality of our human condition and the fact that he has subjected us or we're still subject to vanity. That's just the way it is. Again, I wouldn't have done it that way. But you know, if God had not left us subject to vanity, if we, if we were in full per- per- perfection right now, if we knew all, and there was no doubt, no wondering, do you think that you would be faithful in serving God? Do you think that it would keep you drawn to serve the Lord if you knew all, if you'd already seen heaven, experienced heaven, and you were st- would you still, or after a while, would you say, well, I know it's secure, I know it's safe, I know it's steadfast, and, and, and I believe that it is. I believe the word of God tells us that it is. But the fact that I am subject to vanity, not by my will, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, God has designed it this way because God knows what he's doing. And the fact that you and I are here today worshiping him testifies that we have decided to set aside the vanity of this world and not be subject to that, but instead subject ourselves to the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and look forward to his appearing hopefully with us here today, but more importantly that we trust there's a day coming we will see him with our own eyes appear in the clouds with all the saints of God and all the holy angels with him, and then all the troubles of this earth will be over, Faith and hope will have its end, but thank God, charity, love will continue on and on throughout all the days of glory. May God bless you.